Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Friday, March 4th through Tuesday the 8th feature guest conductor Pavel Yerevi and pianist Benjamin Grosvenor. The program includes Roman Carnival Overture by Hector Berlioz. Benjamin Grosvenor will be soloist in the Chopin Piano Concerto No. 2. After intermission comes the Berlioz Symphonie Fantastique. And here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Chopin Piano Concerto No. 2, a work lasting about 30 minutes. In September 1831, Chopin arrived in Paris, the home of Berlioz, Rossini, and Liszt, writers Honoré de Balzac and Victor Hugo, and painters Jean-Baptiste Carreau and Eugène Delacroix. He entered the company of giants and quietly took the city by storm. Few composers have hit their stride so early. Chopin was already something of a celebrity when he moved to Paris at the age of 21, leaving behind his native Poland and his baptismal name, Frédéric František. He quickly switched to Frédéric. Three months after Chopin arrived, Robert Schumann wrote a review of Chopin's newly published variations on La Cideram La Mano from Mozart's Don Giovanni that included the now famous line, Hats off, gentlemen, a genius. Chopin had not yet played a single note for the Parisian public. Chopin taught himself how to play the piano as a small boy. He made up his own music almost at once, quickly recognizing the intimate relationship between improvising and composing. At the time he was seven, Chopin's first teacher wrote down one of his improvisations, a polonaise, and had it published. His next teacher, Josef Elsner, showed him how to notate on paper the music he invented at the keyboard. Opus 1, a rondo for solo piano, was published in June 1825. When Chopin gave the premiere of this piano concerto in the first public concert of his own music in Warsaw, March 17, 1830, he was immediately acclaimed as a national hero. His first appearance in Paris on February 26, 1832, again performing this concerto, drew the city's most discriminating musicians. Both Liszt and Mendelssohn attended and were full of praise. Chopin's reputation as a pianist is based on just 30 or 40 concerts. Today, he would be a public relations nightmare. He disdained all the trappings of the concert world. He saw no need for posters or program books, and he disliked playing to large crowds and in big concert halls. Once he settled in Paris, Chopin rarely performed in public more than twice a year. Despite, or perhaps because of that, his fame and fortune only seemed to grow. It's difficult to imagine the impact of Chopin's pianism from the comments that were written at the time, but it's clear that his way of playing, with its extraordinary sensitivity to touch and color, delicately shaded dynamics, and inimitable tempo fluctuations, was unique. Invention came to his piano, sudden, complete, sublime, wrote George Sand, the woman whose importance as a writer is now dwarfed by her celebrated cross-dressing and by her intense relationship with the composer. Chopin always drew a very fine line between playing and composing. Carl Flitsch, however, noted one crucial distinction. The other day, I heard Chopin improvise at George Sand's house. It is marvelous to hear Chopin compose in this way. His inspiration is so immediate and complete 
that he plays without hesitation, as if it could not be otherwise. But when it comes to writing it down and recapturing the original thought in all its details, he spends days of nervous strain and almost terrible despair. Of all the developments in music after Beethoven, none is more unlikely than Chopin's success. Within a decade of Beethoven's death, Chopin made a major international career writing mostly small-scale piano pieces. Every one of his compositions includes the piano. He is unique among major composers. Even Liszt, the other outstanding pianist-composer of the 19th century, eventually wrote significant orchestral and choral music. Chopin never thought of composing a symphony, and only in his two piano concertos did he attempt to write for orchestra in the conventional large forms. And yet, his impact on the composers of the day and his influence on the music of the future is incalculable. Chopin's two piano concertos were composed unapologetically as showcases for a traveling virtuoso. Both are youthful works characterized by piano writing of such imagination and beauty that Chopin's inexperience writing for the orchestra is immaterial. The F minor concerto performed at these concerts is the first of the two, even though it was published second, making it incorrectly known then and now as number two. It was designated as the showpiece around which he could build a concert tour in 1830, and as planned, he took Warsaw and later Paris by storm with this work. Chopin didn't set out to make something new of standard concerto form. Both inexperience and a lifelong disinterest in symphonic thought stood in his way. His models were the recent concertos by Johann Nepomuk Hommel, popular, effective, utterly workmanlike scores that were themselves updated knockoffs of Mozart's concertos. For a great innovator, Chopin was a man of surprisingly conservative tastes. The only composers he admired without reservation were Mozart and Bach. Before a concert, he would often play through the well-tempered clavier. He disliked most contemporary music. He had no use for Berlioz or Liszt, and he once told Stefan Heller that Schumann's Carnival, which includes an affectionate parody of Chopin's style, was not music at all. Although the great painter Delacroix was arguably his best friend, Chopin nevertheless preferred the more traditional work of David and Ingres. Chopin's own boldness and daring were apparent only when he turned to the keyboard. In the first movement of the F minor concerto, the music comes to life with the entrance of the piano. Suddenly, the same material that sounded unexceptional and a tad dutiful when played by the orchestra seems distinctive, poetic, and endlessly inventive. In Chopin's exquisite hands, the concerto is a monologue. There is little of the chamber music intimacy between solo and ensemble that characterizes Mozart's works or the heroic dialogue between forces in Beethoven's. The orchestra is the master of ceremonies, accompanist, and indispensable partner, introducing material, lending color and support, but the piano commands center stage. In passage after passage, Chopin writes music for it that is brilliant, virtuosic, and richly ornamented, yet never trivial. There is no need for a cadenza in the first movement. From its first notes, the piano has already irrevocably drawn the spotlight. 
Liszt and Schumann both admired Chopin's slow movement, a quietly stunning nocturne with a rhapsodic embellished piano melody that sounds almost improvised. Midway through, the piano and orchestra carry the music to a wrenching climax. The return of the main material has an unexpected bassoon solo imitating the piano melody. When the orchestra does come to the fore, it always has something smart and effective to say. The whole of the piece is of a perfection almost ideal, Liszt wrote, its expression now radiant with light, now full of tender pathos. While he was at work on this movement, Chopin confessed that it was inspired by Konstantia Gladkowska, his first love, whom he served faithfully, though without saying a word to her for six months before he left Poland. Chopin quickly recovered from unrequited love. The concerto was dedicated to the Countess Delfina Potochka, a new love, when it was published in 1836. It was she, one of the most admired types of society queens, in Liszt's opinion, who was with Chopin when he died. The dazzling finale is a mazurka, too quirky, complex, and unpredictable to be danced. Its rhythms are plainly indebted to Polish folk music, but its spirit is pure international showmanship. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Chopin's Piano Concerto Number no. 2. And now on to the Berlioz Symphonie Fantastique. The work lasts about 49 minutes. I come now to the supreme drama of my life, Berlioz wrote in his memoirs at the beginning of the chapter in which he discovers Shakespeare and the young Irish actress Harriet Smithson. Shakespeare, coming up upon me unawares, struck me like a thunderbolt, he wrote after attending Hamlet, given in English, a language Berlioz did not speak, at the Odeon Theatre on September 11, 1827. But it was Smithson, appearing as Ophelia, and then four days later as Juliet, who captured his heart and set in motion one of the grandest creative outbursts in romantic art. Berlioz began the Symphonie Fantastique almost at once, and it immediately became a consuming passion. Throughout its composition, he was obsessed with Henriette, the familiar French name for her he had begun to use, even though they wouldn't meet until long after the work was finished. On April 16, 1830, he wrote to his friend Humbert Ferrand that he had just written the last note of his new symphony, one of the most shockingly modern works in the repertory and surely the most astonishing first symphony any composer has given us. Here is its subject, he continued, which will be published in a program and distributed in the hall on the day of the concert. Then follows a sketch of the story as famous as any in the history of music, the tale of a man who falls desperately in love with a woman who embodies all he is seeking, is tormented by recurring thoughts of her, and, in a fit of despair, poisons himself with opium, and finally, in a horrible narcotic vision, dreams that he is condemned to death and witnesses his own execution. Berlioz knew audiences well. He provided a title for each of his five movements and wrote a detailed program note to tell the story behind the music. A few days before the premiere, Berlioz's full-scale program was printed in the Revue Musicale, and for the performance on December 5, 1830, 2,000 copies of a leaflet containing the same narrative were distributed in the concert hall, according to Felix Mendelssohn 
who would remember that night for the rest of his life because he was so shaken by the music. No one was unmoved. It's hard to know which provoked the greater response, Berlioz's radical music or its bold story. For Berlioz, who always believed in the bond between music and ideas, the two were inseparable. In an often quoted footnote to the program, as it was published with the score in 1845, he insisted that the distribution of this program to the audience at concerts where the symphony is to be performed is indispensable for a complete understanding of the dramatic outline of the work. Berlioz's own program notes follow, by the way, in just a few moments. Even in 1830, the fuss over the program couldn't disguise the daring of the music. Berlioz's new symphony sounded like no other music yet written. Its hallmarks can be quickly listed. Five movements, each with its own title, as in Beethoven's pastoral, and the use of a signature motif, the ide fix, representing Harriet Smithson, that recurs in each movement and is transformed dramatically at the end. But there is no precedent in music just three years after the death of Beethoven for his staggeringly inventive use of the orchestra, creating entirely new sounds with the same instruments that have been playing together for years, for the bold, unexpected harmonies, and for melodies that are still, to this day, unlike anyone else's. There is not a page of this score that doesn't contain something distinctive and surprising. Some of it can be explained. Berlioz developed his idiosyncratic sense of harmony, for example, not at the piano, since he never learned to play more than a few basic chords, but by improvising on the guitar. But explanation does not diminish our astonishment. None of this was lost on Berlioz's colleagues. According to Jacques Bauzon, the composer's biographer, one can date Berlioz's unremitting influence on 19th century composers from the date of the first performance of the Symphonie Fantastique. In a famous essay on Berlioz, Robert Schumann relished the work's novelty, remembering how, as a child, he loved turning music upside down to find strange new patterns before his eyes. Schumann commented that right side up this symphony resembled such inverted music. He was, at first, dumbfounded, but at last struck with wonderment. Mendelssohn was confused and perhaps disappointed. He is really a cultured, agreeable man, and yet he composes so very badly, he wrote in a letter to his mother. For Liszt, who attended the premiere, he was just 19 years old at the time, and took Berlioz to dinner afterwards, the only question was whether Berlioz was merely a talented composer or a real genius. For us, he concluded, there can be no doubt. He voted for genius. When Wagner called the Symphonie Fantastique a work that would have made Beethoven smile, he was probably right, but he continued, the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony would seem an act of pure kindness to me after the Symphonie Fantastique. In fact, it was Berlioz's discovery of Beethoven that prompted him to write symphonies in the first place. There are two more which followed shortly, Harold in Italy in 1834 and Romeo and Juliet in 1839. At the same time, Berlioz also seems to foreshadow Mahler, for whom a symphony meant the building up of a world using every available technical means. 
The Symphonie Fantastique did, for its time, stretch the definition of the symphony to the limit, but it didn't shatter the model set by Beethoven, for it was a conscious effort on Berlioz's part to tell his fantastic tale in a way that Beethoven would have understood, and to even put his most outrageous ideas into the enduring framework of the classical symphony. At the premiere, Berlioz himself was on stage playing in the percussion section, as he often liked to do, to witness the audience cheering and stomping in excitement at the end. Later, in his memoirs, he admitted that the performance was far from perfect. It hardly could be with works of such difficulty and after only two rehearsals, but that night he knew that he had the public in his camp and that with the recent coveted Prédrome under his belt, his career was about to skyrocket. As promised, here are Berlioz's own program notes for the Symphonie Fantastique. Part 1. Dreams, Passions The author imagines that a young musician afflicted with that moral disease that a well-known writer calls the vague de passion sees for the first time a woman who embodies all the charms and the ideal being he has imagined in his dreams, and he falls desperately in love with her. Through an odd whim, whenever the beloved image appears before the mind's eye of the artist, it is linked with a musical thought whose character, passionate but at the same time noble and shy, he finds similar to the one he attributes to his beloved. This melodic image and the model it reflects pursue him incessantly like a double idée fixe. That is the reason for the constant appearance in every movement of the symphony of the melody that begins the first allegro. The passage from this state of melancholy reverie, interrupted by a few fits of groundless joy, to one of frenzied passion with its gestures of fury, of jealousy, its return of tenderness, its tears, its religious consolations, this is the subject of the first movement. Part 2. A Ball the artist finds himself in the most varied situations, in the midst of the tumult of a party, in the peaceful contemplation of the beauties of nature, but everywhere, in town, in the country, the beloved image appears before him and disturbs his peace of mind. Part 3. A Scene in the Country Finding himself one evening in the country, he hears in the distance two shepherds piping a rose des vaches in dialogue. This pastoral duet, the scenery, the quiet rustling of the trees, gently brushed by the wind, the hopes he has recently found some reason to entertain, all concur in affronting his heart in unaccustomed calm and in giving a more cheerful color to his ideas. He reflects upon his isolation. He hopes that his loneliness will soon be over. But what if she were deceiving him? This mingling of hope and fear, these ideas of happiness disturbed by black presentiments, form the subject of the adagio. At the end, one of the shepherds again takes up the rons des vaches. The other no longer replies. Distant sound of thunder. Loneliness. Silence. Part 4. March to the Scaffold Convinced that his love is unappreciated, the artist poisons himself with opium. The dose of the narcotic too weak to kill him plunges him into a sleep accompanied by the most 
horrible visions. He dreams that he has killed his beloved, that he is condemned and led to the scaffold, and that he is witnessing his own execution. The procession moves forward to the sounds of a march that is now somber and fierce, now brilliant and solemn, in which the muffled noise of heavy steps gives way without transition to the noisiest clamor. At the end of the march, the first four measures of the Ide Fix reappear like a last thought of love interrupted by the fatal blow. Part 5. Dream of a Witch's Sabbath he sees himself at the Sabbath in the midst of a frightful troop of ghosts, sorcerers, monsters of every kind come together for his funeral. Strange noises, groans, bursts of laughter, distant cries which other cries seem to answer. The beloved melody appears again, but it has lost its character of nobility and shyness. It is no more than a dance tune, mean, trivial and grotesque. It is she coming to join the Sabbath, a roar of joy at her arrival. She takes part in the devilish orgy. Funeral Knell, burlesque parody of the Dies Irae, a hymn sung in the old funeral rites of the Catholic Church. Sabbath Round Dance. The Sabbath Round and the Dies Irae are combined. Program notes by Philip Husher on the Berlioz Symphonie Fantastique. My name is Rich Caporella. Thanks for listening.